Welcome to CDS Insight Podcast, presented by LSCSU China Development Society, featuring vibrant intellectual conversations among students, professionals, and entrepreneurs. Hello, and welcome to the CDS Insight Podcast. I'm Deborah, the co-director of China Development Society. I'll be hosting today's podcast. In today's episode, we're going to talk about environmental law, its involvement in the past, and its future outlook. And we are honoured to have with us Viele Hevart, a professor at LSE Law School and founding editor-in-chief of Transnational Environmental Law. Hi, Professor. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hello, Deborah. It's very nice to be here. Okay, let's go straight into the questions then. Um, we have a few questions prepared here. So firstly... There have been an increasing number of legislations and regulations surrounding environmental law in the past few years, from the Paris Agreement to SFDR and possibly a European climate law reflecting the the EU Green Deal. Do you observe any difference between the earlier legislations and the more recent ones? Yes, thank you. Well, that's kicking off with a really good question. And yes, there there has been a significant change in uh, the quality and the, the nature of climate change legislation in the past 20 to 30 years. Uh, first of all, it's probably useful uh, to know that climate change law is very much a, a multi-level architecture. Um, you mentioned, for example, you mentioned in your introduction, the Paris Agreement. Now that is an international agreement adopted under the framework of a large international treaty, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So that's an example of international law. Then you also mentioned, I think, the uh, Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, the uh, SFDR you mentioned. Now that is a European initiative. So that's a kind of regional type of legislation. And when it comes to, for example, the climate change law that's at the moment being mooted, at the EU level, well, kind of a forerunner of that is the UK Climate Change Act of 2008. So that's at the national level. So you have climate change laws at, at a range of different levels. That's one thing to be aware of. Now, when it comes to how has climate change law changed over the past uh, few decades? Well, first of all, there's been a huge change in volume. If you look back at climate change law, um, as recently as 10 years ago, um, the number of legal instruments on climate change has uh, pretty much doubled in that period. There are now well over 2,000 pieces of climate change legislation on the books across the world. Uh, and that number is increasing um, on virtually a daily basis. There's this virtually no country in the world anymore that does not have uh, climate change legislation. You know, like, I mean, even North Korea has a couple of pieces of climate change legislation. So there's been an enormous expansion, enormous growth. There's also been um, a real um, change in, in, the, in the scope, an evolution in the scope of climate change law. Initially, it was mostly focused on sort of heavy industries uh, alone uh, and sort of bespoke range of sectors that were being targeted. Um, Increasingly, we see that more and more sectors, the emissions of more and more sectors are being folded into the legal framework. Uh, if you look, for example, 
at the impending changes, both at the EU level and also at the UK level. You see that aviation is getting more and more included. M maritime sector is getting more and more included in climate change legislation. There's been a growing awareness also of the important contribution of agriculture, of the role of forestry as uh, carbon sinks, uh, sinks as uh, the impact of land use changes. So you get more and more legislation on those issues as well, entering uh, into um, the field of climate change law. Um, and in addition to that, also an enhancing focus on more measures that have to do with adaptation. Because as we all know, even if we become exemplary uh, citizens from tomorrow on and we really drastically cut down on our emissions, we're still going to have to cope with changing uh, with the changing climate and so there's a stronger emphasis now also on resilience building on adaptation laws etc um, so those are evolutions in in volume and in scope and then finally the last point to to raise here probably in this context is that there's been a kind of a change in in approach as well um, initially like when you look at the climate change legislation, really sort of the founding pieces in the 1990s, like the UNFCCC, which I mentioned before, you have sort of like a lot of aspirational uh, legislation with overarching, but very indeterminate goals. Like the UNFCCC says that, well, what we should try and do is try to avert dangerous anthropogenic climate change. But at that point, it wasn't even clear, it wasn't even made explicit what that meant, at what kind of temperature rise you would hit dangerous anthropogenic climate change. So broad, it used to be quite broad targets, broad language, but not a lot of detailing underneath. Then in the kind of second generation of climate change legislation, uh, you got more kind of more specific, more uh, uh, specific pieces that were more uh, clear about what kind of targets were being set about what uh, level of emission reduction was being expected. But the legislation tended to be rather piecemeal. Like, for example, a country would have an emissions trading scheme or some uh, um, carbon taxes would be attempted or there would be a number of energy efficiency standards. But it wasn't a sort of very comprehensive approach, a very cohesive approach uh, that we saw in a lot of countries and regions. And now here, the past 10 years, climate change law has really become, I think, it, the, the strategic dimension of climate change law has been strengthened, has been enhanced. So we now see a combination of overall targets, but with also with more specific measures in implementation. And there is a greater attempt being made at having a kind of a cohesive package that works towards achieving those overall targets. And in terms of those targets, some important targets to be aware of is that, for example, a lot of um, countries in, in, the, you know, in, in the global north have now uh, set uh, net zero targets by 2050, for example, uh, in the um, uh, proposed EU climate change law, there is a net zero by 2050 target. The UK too has already adopted a net zero by 2050 target. 
and also an aim to already reduce by 78% by 2035. So we do have more specified, harder targets emerging now in climate change legislation. And these targets serve as a kind of umbrella under which a whole range of different legal measures on renewable energy, on energy efficiency, on emissions reductions, on carbon levies, on funding, etc., on innovation are being adopted. So it's a more strategic package that we see now. There have been quite a few number of changes, I can tell, in the past few years on an environmental and yes. And that's good. It's very necessary because, you know, there is a huge urgency to uh, the climate crisis and there's it's an enormous agenda, even with all these kind of changes happening, even with the uh, more ambitious goals, for example, that the European Union has put forward um, for 2030 to kind of have to reduce 55 percent by uh, 2030, even with that. Uh, we're still in a very precarious position and we are still facing major change. Um, so it's a large it's a large initiative. There's a lot happening, um, but we need more, more, more. Yes. Yeah, actually, there was a report I saw this morning from the UN saying that we are seeing double the, the amount of days with 50 plus degrees C in, on the earth. So maybe that carries to our next question. So what are the challenges in the execution of current environmental legislations and how could the legislators take them into account in the future? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, you ask here about environmental law and obviously climate change is part of that, but it is one part of that. Environmental law is broader than that. Also, for example, includes um, you know, more general air pollution, water pollution, protection, um, nature conservation, etc. And um, to try and pursue environmental protection through law is a very challenging um, mandate, basically. It's a very challenging mission um, for a range of different reasons. And I won't go into detail on all of them here, but I will give you one example that I think is quite telling for environmental law. Um, and it's actually, uh, it's, it's an example that I tend to start my uh, environmental law course with. Um, I tend to show students uh, a picture of a car smashing into a wall. And then I ask them, you know, what are the, the legal issues that you see here in this picture? Um, and typically, the first reaction, a very understandable uh, reaction of, of people with a bit of a legal mind is, oh, well, there may be some form of liability here. Maybe this wall was built in the wrong place and the car smashed into it. So there's, there's damage to the car that has to be uh, considered. And maybe the builder of the wall is legally accountable. Or maybe it's the other way around. The car shouldn't have smashed into the wall. Uh, there's damage to the wall. The owner of the car is responsible. There might be insurance issues. So those are the kind of issues that they think about in the first place, because those are visible. You see the car smashing into the wall. Now, there might be a lot more going on in that scenario. It might be, for example, that that car is emitting um, unacceptably high levels of uh, PPM or of, uh, of carbon dioxide, for example, as well. Um, but you don't see that. It's invisible. Kind of, it's kind of the, the, the harm that is occurring 
isn't immediately visible to, uh, to the eye. And that is a big challenge um, because that's a kind of problem that uh, characterizes a lot of environmental scenarios. Um, the harm is invisible. You have a kind of you can have a latency of impact. So the impacts only become apparent later on after the actions that caused the harm have maybe stopped happening, uh, for example. Um, the, um, the harm can be diffuse in that, well, if there's just one car driving around, even if it's emitting quite a lot of harmful substances, well, you know, the environment is resilient. It will absorb that and it won't be a problem. It's only because there are millions of cars driving around that it's a problem. So you have the harm is caused by a broad range of diffuse number of sources. Um, and also, if that car would only be driven once a day, or, or even once, or let's say once uh, every month or so, it might not be a problem because the harm can be incremental. The more pollution you add, the greater the problem becomes. So we have environmental problems often have a kind of profile of um, latency, diffusion, and incrementalism. And that poses a number of problems for law. It makes it difficult, for example, to set regulatory standards because the relationship between the polluting activity and the impact may not be very clear. It makes it very difficult to assess compliance with these standards. It also, because of the diffuse and incremental nature of environmental, of many types of environmental harm, it makes it very difficult to establish accountability who is responsible for the harm that we experience. And because of this low level of visibility, there also tends to be a, an underestimation of the impact of environmental harm. You don't see it happening straight away, so it doesn't appear as bad to you. Like, you know, when Volkswagen um, produced these cars that were actually emitting a lot more hazardous substances than the regulator thought, they were equipped with these, what they call like regulator cheat devices. How bad is that really? Did they really do major environmental harm or were they just being a bit sort of, you know, a bit naughty? They really shouldn't have, but oh, it's a bit of a victimless crime. Because of the low level of visibility, because of the difficulties in establishing causation, these kind of issues are challenging and are complicated. And there is also, there's not one sort of silver bullet for legislators respond to this, to, to kind of overcome these problems. But there are a number of, of steps that can be taken. For one thing, one feature that is quite prominent in environmental law is that there are actually quite a few legal provisions that are there exactly to make the invisible more visible. There tends to be a lot of emphasis on the production of information on kind of tracking and tracing your own input, etc., on creating information so that we have uh, a better understanding of uh, causal relationships. So that's one thing. Um, when it comes to assessing compliance, it's important not just to think about overall long-term targets, but also really thinking about benchmarks, like how are we going to measure whether a company is complying and thinking about timescales. How are we going to assess it in the short term, in the medium term and in the long term? 
because if you only have an assessment in the long term, environmental harm is very often irreversible. So you can have a final conclusion that the law has been broken, but the, the environment will no longer be helped by that conclusion and restoration is not always possible. So you have to think carefully about timescales. And also there is a, a call for you know, stronger education about the seriousness of environmental impacts, stronger education among the public, also among the judiciary, so that the low level visibility of environmental impacts doesn't necessarily result in their trivialization. I think that's a, your answer covers like a really broad range of problems and solutions to our current environmental legislations. And that was that was quite, you know, I was expecting like, yeah, I thought when I thought of the answer, I knew that, you know, there's the problem of environmental damage for us. It's irreversible. It's not going to with legislations, even if the law is broken, like we can't do anything about it post damage because it is, it has been done. Mm. So, but then I didn't realize there were so many potential problems there for like the legislators. Oh so yes, I mean yes. If you if you like problems, environmental law is your friend. It's <laughs> it's a festival of problems. But there's also and um, what you. You just mentioned something here, and this one of kind of like my, my uh, favorite little expressions when I talk about environmental law is that it's a field riddled with pyrrhic victories and glorious failures, which is on the one hand, for example, you can have a, a, a successful court case. Hurrah! You know, we've won. The environmental campaigners have won and uh, the polluting entity is held accountable. But, but the environmental harm is still there. It's still done, you know, and it's not going to be reversed because by that time, for example, the local population of great crested newts has effectively been exterminated and that's not going to come back. So there are a lot of Pyrrhic victories. But at, at the same time, there are also a lot of cases where maybe even if because, for example, because of these obstacles in holding parties accountable, where a case is lost, but where still a lot of awareness is raised. Uh, cases that even if they weren't successful, still, you know, drew attention to kind of major issues, like, for example, the, the, way, we treat, the, the, the way we treat animals and the, uh, the way we uh, kind of systematically degrade the environment. Um, so a case can be lost, but still serve a very valuable social function. Yeah, that's very informative and very, I think, very educate, educational for students to learn about this so that like in the future, when they think of environmental law, it's not just like a lawsuit. It's not just what we debate on, on, on the court or it's actually real harm doing to our society and our planet. Okay. It's not theoretical. That is definitely yeah. true. And I think also I, I have to say that the my past few generations of students have been have shown a very strong awareness of that. And I think that, you know, it 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 can feel a little bit doom and gloomy at times because we know that there's so much environmental degradation happening and we seem to be, you know, not really kind of being able to turn the tide as quickly and as effectively as we should. But there has 
definitely been a change of mood. There's been a, a change of awareness. Um, up until 10 years ago, uh, politicians who were trying who were campaigning for election, for example, um, would would routinely not mention their stance on the environment, would not mention it because you know it was seen as a kind of like a little side gig. That wouldn't happen anymore today. It's there's a stronger awareness of of how crucial environmental protection is for the well-being of our society. So that's a positive thing. That's great. That's at least calming to know that people are raising awareness on this issue. And under the current trend, actually, of setting carbon neutrality objective and net zero objectives that you were talking about mm -hmm. uh, around the world, many countries have legislated around this area, such as China, the US, the UK and Europe. So yes. what are the main similarities and differences between the legislations in these countries? Okay. All right. Well, well, I should first start with a confession here. It's like, uh, I don't know all of the climate change laws around the world. <laughs> and uh, in fact, I don't know the vast majority of them. Um, but I can start with giving you some advice on how to find out about them. And there are kind of two very useful sources uh, to be aware of, and that we also as LSE members should be particularly proud of. Um, the first is, is, uh, the, are the nationally determined contributions, the NDCs, that are adopted under the Paris Agreement. Under the Paris Agreement, um, all countries have to kind of contribute towards climate change mitigation and adaptation, but what precisely they have to do isn't specified in the agreement itself. Instead, the countries have to come up with their own kind of program, with their own set of measures, and submit that to um, the, the international um, governance regime uh, for, for review, etc., and for, for following up. Uh, those are the nationally determined contributions. They are publicly available, and they also include information about all the laws and policies in these countries on climate change. So that's a very good source. And then uh, a really practical source is the Grantham Research Institute at the LSC has this website called Climate Change Laws of the World, and they give you a fantastic overview of every country's different climate change uh, legislation, even with very useful little summaries of broadly what the different legal instruments cover. So that's a wonderful research um, resource. Now, you, the, the countries that you mentioned, it is good to be aware kind of even if you can't know all the details of every piece of climate change legislation, to be aware of kind of the different contexts in which climate change legislation in these countries and regions uh, is adopted, because there are some kind of different characteristics to each. Like if you look at the EU, what you will see is quite a sort of quite an advanced, quite a comprehensive approach to climate change legislation. And that, that is partly to do also with the EU really from the 1990s onwards, seizing this as uh, an opportunity to um, portray itself as a kind of as a global leader 
to show kind of its leadership position. It's uh, really kind of assumed this position very prominently from uh, the Kyoto Protocol negotiations onwards. Um, and so it kind of also helps to explain a bit why, while the EU seems to be particularly strong on climate change legislation, um, when you compare it at least to, the, to other areas of the regions in the world. If you look at China, there also you find, a, uh, you know, China has quite a few climate change laws, but what you will find is that China, re China relies quite heavily on policy. So they, they rely heavily on policy. They rely heavily on the initiative of the executive, basically. So um, a lot of the instruments are, are policy instruments rather than, strictly speaking, legal instruments. Um, that's a very kind of typical uh, China profile. Um, thinking about the US, if you look at the US, what you see there is that if you look at the federal level, really looks like the U.S. is lagging quite behind when you compare it to a number of uh, other jurisdictions. Um, and that has to do with, um, well, with lawmaking at the federal level having been either very difficult or, uh, you know, there being very limited interest in climate change lawmaking in the past years. Um, under the Obama administration, um, President Obama found it very difficult to push through any kind of environmental or climate change legislation because um, the administration was dealing with uh, a Senate that was majority Republican, that was also and still is uh, following pretty much what you can call like a scorched earth, earth uh, strategy where they would just block the measures coming from the White House pretty much regardless of what was in them in order to make the administration look weak and ineffective. So that was a kind of policy. Um, so you didn't have much happening. You had the clean power plan, but then that, that was pretty much dismantled by the Trump administration, which had very little interest in doing anything on climate. You'll probably remember one of the first things that President Trump did um, was withdraw from the Paris Agreement. So you got very little happening at the federal level, old instruments like the Clean Air Act sort of being used, you know, repurposed a little bit for climate change, but not a lot of bespoke federal uh, legislation. But what you do get then uh, at the US level is that actually more initiatives have been developed, more legal measures have been set up at the state level. So you have to look more at state legislation in order to get a full overview of climate change law in the US. So that's very typical for the US profile. This is kind of, um, you have uh, typically, you know, from a good handful to a small minority of US states having things such as energy efficiency standards in certain sectors. Uh, there's also, there is a regional emissions trading regime. It's called the REGI, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, uh, to which I think about 11 states uh, are signed up. Uh, so it's kind of, it, it's more at the state level that you have to look for the more, more recent developments. That's typical for the US. Uh, finally, if you look at Australia, Australia has a fairly unambitious, well, not fairly, actually a really unambitious set of overall climate change targets. Um, but also what's quite distinctive about Australia is that they're um, putting a lot of emphasis on particularly on disclosure-based measures. 
So that's a kind of, that seems to be the Australian style to have a lot of emphasis on, well, we, we're going to try and pursue better environmental behavior through disclosure, essentially. So different regions definitely have their different styles, influenced by the political context, influenced by uh, geopolitical fluctuations, etc. cetera. Um, and while... Um, when it comes to actually knowing the specific measures, you'll just have to kind of do the research and see what is there. It's quite useful to be aware of this broader context to differentiate. Um, and also recently, I think I've heard quite a lot of debates and arguments surrounding um, setting targets, setting you know, uh, net zero targets in different countries. Because most countries that we've heard of are aiming in 2050, but then people claim that there's a difference between developing countries and Western countries when setting targets because Western countries are more privileged or more in the position of mm, achieving it you know, faster than the developing countries who are still struggling to to try to gain profit from maybe um, activities that are no, not so beneficial to the environment. So what do you think about this difference and how, how are the legislations going to tackle that, in your opinion? Um, well, there is, there is absolutely a difference. There is a huge difference um, in terms of the kind of contributions that different countries make and continue to make to the problem um, in terms of their kind of historic responsibility, in terms of their capacity to mount a reasonable response. Uh, so yes, there is a lot of what we call in, the, in legal parlance differentiation here. And that is that, that notion that countries all have some degree of responsibility but not every country has or should have the same responsibility. That is also a notion that is reflected in international law, for example, through what is called the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities. And uh, Now, there are different ways of trying to kind of uh, give effect to that principle. For example, in the climate change uh, arena, there was a kind of old style of um, implementing what we call a CBDR. Um, and that was by kind of giving certain quantified emission reduction targets to the wealthier countries and not to the poorer countries. But uh, that became politically untenable. And so now it's more kind of self-differentiation that happens. There's still a very clear message and, you know, an unequivocal expectation in the Paris Agreement that developed countries will take the lead. Developed countries have to reduce their emissions in absolute terms. Developing countries have to make contributions but they have greater flexibility and they're not expected to take the lead. But exactly how that plays out, that is more up to the countries themselves now, which is actually, which is not good for developing countries. The situation for developing countries has definitely not improved from that kind of legal perspective. Um, and well, if it, I, I think that this is an area where notwithstanding this principle being 
recognized and being embedded both in the United Nations Framework Convention and in the Paris Agreement. Yes, there is a huge inequality in um, how climate change affects different countries um, and in the kind of contributions that are being expected. And uh, contrary to what some might argue, I think that this is an inequality that still overwhelmingly harms dis uh, is to the disadvantage of developing countries rather than developed countries. Ideally, I would very much like to see the balance shifted uh, more with the onus more towards developed countries, making a larger contribution, investing more in clean energy um, in, de in developing countries, et cetera, bearing a larger part of the burden uh, than the arrangements currently reflect. Okay, that is great to learn about. Um, in our audience, there are lots of people who are interested in green finance and ESG investments, which are really trending topics at the moment. So how do you think environmental law are playing a role in the ESG investments that we are currently talking about? And, and how is it playing out? Okay, well, um, when it comes to ESG, so um, uh, the, the governance standards, these very often started as, as voluntary standards that, uh, say, large companies would, would subscribe to. And they, they tended to use it as a kind of, as a way to profile themselves as a kind of, uh, you know, we are good citizens um, message towards shareholders, towards investors, towards their consumers. Uh, what we see happening increasingly now in the past few years is that these, these ESG standards are something very similar to that, that they're now become, being incorporated in legislation. And so they are becoming um, uh, mandatory more. We see that, for example, in uh, there's a, a European proposal for this at the moment pending um, to basically um, introduce these kind of standards as mandatory. There's the duty of vigilance law in France, uh, which has been uh, implemented already. So you get a kind of transition from a voluntary to a mandatory approach. And that's, of course, that's one of the things that law does is make sometimes, uh, you know, informal arrangements, formal, more official, more binding, etc. Uh, when it comes to green finance, there are obviously there are ways in which uh, law can basically create a kind of a, a level of stability and security for green finance to become kind of to, to become leveraged more easily for it to become a more attractive option. Um, one thing though, and this is not just a law, this is also a policy issue that we should be aware of here, is that while on the one hand, there is more kind of stimulation of green investment, there are uh, incentives being introduced by governments for green investment, etc. There's still a lot of support for fossil fuel industries as well. And what we see often is that, well, you have kind of sort of, you have some kind of tax rebate if you install solar panels, but then at the same 
at the same time, fossil fuel companies are getting massive tax rebates for certain issues that completely outstrip any kind of benefit that is being created for renewables. Um, so we need to be very aware of that and probably campaign a bit more on that. That is actually, it's beginning to happen. Uh, but there are many ways um, in which law can support conversions towards more sustainable financing, conversions towards uh, more uh, sustainable um, industrial and commercial practices. Um, it does so to a degree, but it's not always consistent and there's scope for more. Thank you for listening to the Inside Podcast. To learn more about China Development Society, follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and WeChat.